everyone. Welcome to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson, and I am here with my co-host, Dan Torres. What's happening? What's happening is that we have a special guest today, an investigative reporter from the Daily Hampshire Gazette, Dusty Christensen. Welcome, Dusty. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Thanks. And we wanted to have you on the show today to talk about the Holyoke Police Department. You have done quite a bit of reporting on the city of Holyoke in general, and especially some deep dives into the police department. So you decided to do a public records request into the overtime expenses paid by the Holyoke Police Department. Um, what prompted you to want to do that? It's a good question. Uh, so earlier uh, uh, last year, there was a video posted on YouTube that instantly went viral, got, uh, garnered all sorts of attention in Holyoke and the greater region. Uh, it was of a police officer within the department, Rafael Roca was his name, uh, making all sorts of allegations over a very long YouTube video. Uh, amongst them, uh, you know, accusations of racism within the department and and allegations that there were some improprieties when it came to uh, who took overtime in the department and and whether they were really working that time. Uh, obviously, it caused a big stir. The police department denied all of it. Um, and eventually, uh, over the course of about a year, uh, they moved to fire Rafael Roca on the, the last day of the, uh, of the interim mayor's uh, administration. Um, so obviously, as a newspaper, we are very interested in uh, those sorts of, of accusations and, and uh, more importantly, verifying whether they're true or not. And so obviously, the, the first place to start was to start making public records requests of the police department. For folks who don't know, you can request public information and public documents from any agency under our state's kind of awful transparency law, the public records law. Um, <laughs> But so that's where we started. Obviously, it's our it's our job to follow up on those kinds of accusations and to dig in a little deeper. And as the beat reporter for Holyoke at our newspaper, I should say one of the few people covering Holyoke full time in this whole area, uh, I felt it was incumbent on me to start digging into some of the facts there. And what prompted you to start looking at the overtime at the Holyoke Police Department? You know, it's been an issue in other police departments across the state. Uh, obviously, the state police had its own massive overtime scandal uh, that, that made headline news for, for a, a long time. Uh, officers uh, claiming they worked overtime shifts when they didn't and getting paid exorbitant rates for those overtime hours. Uh, so when that accusation was made by Rafael Roca the now fired uh, police officer and whistleblower, uh, that was obviously an, an initial uh, an initial entry point into the story. You know, I should note that the issue of overtime spending at the police department has been a frequent topic of conversation in the Holyoke City Council. Uh, in March of 2021, this is right as we started to report on all this stuff, uh, the police chief then, Manny Fabo, uh, was quite angry in a subcommittee meeting uh, calling counselors uh, insulting and ridiculous, saying they wanted to micromanage the police department uh, over questions uh, about overtime spending uh, in the department, which gets more money than any other department aside from the schools in Holyoke. Uh, so immediately we knew that payroll data would be one way to figure out what kind of overtime spending was going on in the department, to track it over time. So we asked for 10 years of payroll records from the police department that come in lovely Excel spreadsheets that you can uh, you know, start to analyze. And, and we discovered that there was quite a bit of uh, overtime spending within the department. It had gone from about uh, $587,000 in 2011 
to 1.4 million in 2019, 1.3 million in 2020. Uh, so, so it uh, doubled and more than doubled in that amount of time. And uh, that's just city paid overtime. Grant paid overtime, which is paid by state taxpayers or federal taxpayers, uh, also had ballooned uh, during that time period from 94,000 roughly to $336,000. Um, I should say it's a little down in 2021, having looked at it recently. Um, uh, but, you know, obviously that's a lot of money. And so we began to dig into who gets that overtime, what are they getting paid? And as it turns out, 17 of the top highest paid city employees in Holyoke were police officers. Uh, of those 17, eight earned more than $200,000 in gross pay. Um, so it really became a way to to provide context to this ongoing discussion that was happening in city government, you know, in in the in the city as a whole amongst the residents, um, and so that's where we started with the story. Well, I'm just going to assume if a police officer was here right now, they would say that uh, the justification for that additional overtime is. We had work to do. We had things to figure out. We had to go and do things in Holyoke. We, you know, we weren't just, uh, nothing I heard so far says that they were, you know, putting in overtime just for the sake of putting in overtime to make money and not doing it, right? So I'm curious to know, is there a way to know if that overtime is an accurate reflection of what's going on? That's a, that's a really good question and, and one that, you know, payroll data alone could not get to. And, and you're absolutely right. The police department uh, points out rightly that there's a lot of crime in Holyoke and that they spend a lot of time tackling issues like like drug trafficking and, and violent crime. There's been a number of murders mm -hmm. this year in Holyoke and that that overtime is used uh, to deal with that and also to deal with what they characterize as, as understaffing mm -hmm. uh, in the department. Now, I, I, I want to say there are people who push back against uh, mm -hmm. the assumption that um, spending that overtime has had any real impact on mm. crime in the city or that the department is understaffed. Uh, you know, that's obviously a contentious conversation. But for us as reporters, we obviously wanted to figure out that question you just asked. Like, mm. okay, well, what more can we learn about overtime in mm. the police department and whether or not it's being used in appropriate manners? Yeah. So and we assumed and uh, we assumed correctly that uh, the, part, the department maybe kept more accurate tracking of overtime hours, who is working them and what they're going towards. And so we did another public records request for that data. It came back a lot messier, so it took me a really long time to to wrangle that data for, for a couple different years. And uh, what we found uh, were some things that, that even city councilors didn't know, a lot of people in city government, and and it has gotten people to begin questioning things like the, the contract the union has uh, mm -hmm. with the city and, and how it may be beneficial to the department at the expense of other departments. Um, we learned that, that, uh, that during fiscal year 2020, uh, 15 officers were paid for more than 500 hours of overtime. Mm -hmm. uh, some of their rates went from $94 an hour to $109 an hour. Uh, of those, I think this is the, the thing that a lot of people uh, uh, sort of highlighted. Three of those officers claimed more than 800 hours of overtime in one year. And another officer, there was one officer who claimed uh, more than 1,200 hours of overtime. Uh, that is like more than 20 hours of overtime uh, uh, I think a week, if I'm if I'm doing my calculations correctly. Right. That um, seems that seems excessively high for. A it's word. a it's a it's a lot, and you know there are provisions in their union contract, for example, that if they get called in to court uh, to do overtime work and they work 30 minutes, they still get I think it's three hours of pay for okay. for four examples hours. or four hours. Yeah. yeah, it might be four hours. So. Um, 
you know, so it's not necessarily to say that like somebody worked all those hours, but they earned all those hours mm-hmm. through whatever agreements exist with the with the city and what how their pay structure is is uh, is set up. You know, we we did find that a lot of uh, overtime uh, did was. Uh, used for drug-related, uh, uh, you know, activity, at least according to the department spreadsheets, um, that supervisors were taking a whole lot of overtime, and obviously those folks get paid uh, pretty handsomely uh, in terms of hourly rates. Um, we also discovered in, in some of our old reporting, too, that the overtime rate in Holyoke, unlike uh, some other departments, is not just time and a half of an officer's pay, but it's time and a half of a couple different pay categories combined, including your regular salary, the educational um, benefits you get from getting, for example, a master's degree or, or, or other degrees, mm-hmm. um, as well as longevity pay that mm-hmm. you get. So it really climbs very quickly. And I think it's raised a lot of questions about the negotiations the city's had with the union. Well, I also wanted to touch on grants and and the role that they play in funding the overtime that you've been discussing in the Holyoke Police Department. Can you can you talk a little bit about what what the significance uh, is of those grants, uh, especially in, in regarding to who's writing these grants? That's a great question, Dan. Uh, the grants are an important piece of this. Uh, uh, so there's two types of of overtime pay you can say, or two large buckets. There's city paid overtime, which is for things like snow plowing or the, you know, uh, elections, for example, or of course, uh, traditional police work. Um, But there are also grants that come from state agencies, uh, from federal agencies like the FBI or the local district attorney's office. to do overtime work for more complex investigations uh, of of drug trafficking, to give just one example, and so obviously the police has to, the police department has to write a lot of these grants, and and it has chosen uh, one officer in particular. Uh, his name is John Hart. I believe he's a, a lieutenant now. Um, uh, to write all of those grants in the police department uh, for that are often used for for overtime pay. Uh, it should be noted that uh, John Hart was the person who worked the most overtime in the department in the year that we looked at, uh, FY20, uh, by far and away. He worked more than 1,200 hours, uh, the vast majority of that time, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, coming from grant funded overtime sources. Um, I, I'm sure some of that is administration of the grants, uh, et cetera. Um, but obviously it raised a lot of questions for the city about uh, the way that the police department applies to and manages grants. Those are questions that had been bubbling up long before we reported on this. Um, and so actually just recently the city uh, has, in his new budget, uh, Joshua Garcia, the mayor, has said uh, that now there's going to be a civilian grant manager position at the police department, that police are no longer going to be managing those uh, grants or, or writing them, I suppose. Um, and, uh, you know, his rationale behind that is that police should be out doing police work, not, you know, uh, behind a desk running grants. Somebody else is, that's a civilian can do that. Um, but obviously, these questions were raised in how we reported on that. I should also say there's another category of, uh, of, of overtime or another bucket that they pay overtime uh, for investigations, and that is from civil asset forfeiture, which is when state, federal agencies can seize property from you if they say it is involved with some kind of illegal activity. The bar... Uh, for that accusation is just cause here in Massachusetts, which is the lowest legal standard uh, of any state in the country. And so we were able to also request the department's records about how much it's 
money it's taken from people and asset forfeiture over the last four years. That's $1 million almost. Uh, and how much it's spent on overtime and other things we were able to track uh, that they, uh, I believe, have spent something like $233,000 on overtime, uh, a, lo a lot of which went to the now police chief, David Pratt, when he was a captain. Um, and heading investigations in the department. Uh, but they also spent it on all kinds of other stuff, like desk chairs and uh, scopes for rifles and ammunition, I believe. Uh, and um, so, uh, and glue sticks was something that we saw that they spent it on. I don't know what the glue sticks are for, but um, uh, it, was, it was a really interesting way to get into how this money gets into overtime spending at a local police department. Yeah, so you're saying that money seized from citizens of Holyoke through investigations is funding kind of essential functions of the police department? Yeah, you could you can definitely say that. You know, the 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 money has to make its way through a court process before it's officially forfeited, but that court process is is Kafka-esque, I think, for a lot of defendants uh, and and just this very Byzantine system of having to track your civil asset forfeiture case while you're probably facing a, a, a drug trafficking charge or something of the sort. Um, many people don't fight to have their money given back to them, and, and the process is very easy to, to strip them of that money or cars or anything else. And, and I've done some research on this very quickly that said uh, Massachusetts, uh, the bar is just cause. And yeah. that is the lowest level in the entire country. Massachusetts is an aberration in that. I think every other state has a higher threshold. Yeah, at least for, preponderance for, of the evidence. Uh, preponderance which is the of the evidence, which is next up above from that. Yeah, But we would need a legal scholar to, to confirm that. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk about what? Oh, I was just going to say, you. so you've looked at um, civil asset forfeiture data since 2018. How about prior to 2018? Uh, another great question. You know, obviously, uh, for uh, for us, we chose to go back, uh, you know, a couple years because it's a more digestible, uh, you know, amount of data to wrangle. Um, and it was also the, the records that the city had more readily available. Um, so, you know, I, I would be curious to know myself how civil asset forfeiture has grown or declined or remained the same here in, in our area. We just don't know. Mm. And Dusty, your reporting has prompted an actual audit of the Holyoke Police. You want to tell us a little bit about that and uh, what the status is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you're right that um, after we released our reporting on overtime hours and uh, an overtime pay in the Holyoke Police Department, that uh, at the time it was during a mayoral race between Joshua Garcia, who is now the mayor of Holyoke, um, and uh, at-large city councilor Michael Sullivan. Uh, and so... Our reporting was released, specifically our second story relating to overtime hours in the department. And Sullivan immediately called for an audit of the police department. Uh, Garcia uh, quickly said that he was also supportive of that, though I should note that Garcia said that uh, you know such an audit is needed in every department and that uh, you know, he was committed to, he said at the time, trying to use uh, federal coronavirus stimulus funds to, uh, to give uh, hazard pay, I think it was, to uh, the city's police department and fire department and, and first responders. Um, so eventually Garcia was elected and we obviously continued to follow up on questions of whether the audit was, was going to move forward. It did. They have, they've put it out to bid. They've gotten bids from consultants for uh, those services. And as I understand it, in the near future, they're going to pick uh, a firm uh, to begin doing this work of, of auditing the police department and taking a, a deeper dive into the finances and, and the efficiency of how the department is run. 
What is it like as a reporter when something you do kind of influences the actual politics of that, polio? That's what you want to see. I mean, you want to make change as a reporter. You want your, your stories to have impact, whether it's investigative reporting or just, you know, reporting the, the life of, of somebody locally uh, who, who passed away and, and, you know, honoring their legacy. Like, you always want to see your stories have impact out in the community. Obviously, with investigative reporting, it often means that, city uh, officials or, or politicians react and, 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 you know, try to uh, respond to the things that you found. Mm. Mm. You've had to do a lot of number crunching yes. <laughs> to do this. What do you mean when the data came back messier the second time? Tell us a little bit about the work you've had to do behind the scenes to find this out. Sure. I think, you know, payroll data is something that it, it has to be very meticulously kept by city officials. Payroll data is submitted to, you know, the IRS and to the, the state. And so all of that data has to be very easy, easily read, illegible in order to send it to those, uh, you know, agencies. Uh, obviously, the department's own internal tracking of, of overtime hours doesn't have those same, I don't, I don't believe that's a, like a state requirement that they track, you know, how those overtime hours are being used in certain departments and all of those types of things. So uh, so it, the department's tracking of it was just a little more haphazard than necessarily would have been the case with payroll data. That just means that there's a, a lot that goes into us uh, you know, somebody's name was spelled four different ways in, in the spreadsheet. So trying to figure out that all the names are spelled, that people's data is all going into one name, for example. Um, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of knowledge of, of spreadsheets. Uh, you know, I'm somebody who's not shy about calling and asking for help. So I called people uh, in data science at, at some of the local colleges who, who know a thing or two about this this type of stuff and and really pick the brains of people smarter than me in, in order to be sure that we were accurately digesting that data and and coming to whatever conclusions it led to. You know, I wanted to step back and, and talk about uh, the Holyoke overtime data that you were referring a little earlier, and and it seems outrageous that the amounts that you were talking about. And so I want from you to understand how does this compare to other cities in the nearby area that could be a comparison? Do they have similar uh, overtime needs? Oh, it's a it's a great question. Uh, I do know that Holyoke has a reputation of having particularly high overtime pay. Uh, because of that issue I was talking about earlier, normally a department's overtime pay is just your salary times 1.5. Uh, Holyoke gets to add some other Holyoke officers get to add some other pay categories into that base before multiplying it by 1.5. Um, I think your question is one that local investigative journalism needs to be digging into. You know, I mean, I can say that as a regular daily beat reporter, we don't have an investigative team at the at the Gazette. Uh, you know, quite frankly, we're we're understaffed in, in editor and reporter ranks, and we've spoken long as a union about the need for more staffing at the paper. Um, it, you know, it presents a challenge to uh, to do a story of of, of this size. Um, you know, it's obviously something we're super committed to, and 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 really take the time to do. Um, but I think that speaks to the greater need for more investigative journalism here in our valley and and everywhere else. Um, you know, those are the kinds of stories that that people should be tackling. Uh, we haven't had the chance to to request the same data from other local departments and decide who's using overtime more and, and, you know, to what extent it's justified or not. Uh, I think those are things that we all should be doing a lot more of. Mm. And the things you're uncovering have been going on for at least a decade. 
Because that's how far back you looked. And if there had been more watchdog reporting, you wonder if it would have gone on this long. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think Holyoke, like so many communities across the United States, is in some ways a news desert. Now, I don't want to say it's totally a news desert. I mean, obviously, we cover the city. Uh, I know Mass Live has a has a reporter who they pay freelance to, to cover the city. I believe the Holyoke Sun is the is a local paper that's that's still running there. And and there's other publications that uh, in, in the Spanish language that cover Holyoke. And so, so, uh, you know, I don't want to say that it's a total news desert, but, um, you know, it's a city of, of around 40,000 people, I think. And it used to have its own newspaper, the, you know, and uh, newspapers in New England, which owns the Gazette now, uh, closed that newspaper. I think it was in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, yeah, I think Holyoke and, and all of our local communities deserve way more coverage uh, than they're than they're currently getting. And, mm. you know, I'm glad that we are providing that coverage, but there needs to be more of it. I'm curious to know what the police department's justification is for the overtime. Have they given an official explanation for it publicly saying, look, yes, all of these numbers is the data we provided, but what's their explanation for it? And then also I'm curious to know what you think about, uh, you know, Joshua Garcia's uh, uh, thinking of this and maybe the police department is maybe they're thinking, look, we have to spend all this extra money. There's a shortage of police officers throughout the state. We can't recruit officers. If they dig in too deep, maybe officers would quit. Maybe they'd find other jobs. I mean, uh, you know, what you know, what would be the explanation for having a, a robust funded police force? Um, is that is that what they think is needed in order to, like you were talking about, deal with some of the the crime related issues that are facing the city? Yeah, absolutely. I you know I, I will say that um, that the police department through its spokesperson uh, Captain Matthew Moriarty, uh, you know, did uh, he he also serves as the president of the police supervisors union, I believe. Uh, you know, did uh, point out that that in in their mind, higher levels of overtime can often be attributed to budget cuts over the years, uh, as as they say. Uh, they say that's uh, that's created a staffing shortage uh, as the department works to keep its minimum level of officers on duty. Uh, you know, they say that's that's exacerbated by uh, a large number of recent retirements, uh, officers taking uh, paid time off or injured on duty under other unexpected events. Um, I know that other police departments as well have complained that it, it's more difficult to recruit officers into the department nowadays, um, and that can lead to what they characterize as as, as understaffing. I know that, that other people think that, that the department is is well staffed and, and should perhaps have have less staffing. Um, Joshua Garcia has been really clear on this. Uh, you know, on the campaign trail. Mm. He uh, he often says that on the campaign trail, he only no knocked doors largely in the, the city's uh, lower wards, Ward 1 and Ward 2. That represents South Holyoke and the Flats, um, mostly Hispanic neighborhoods. Uh, Garcia himself grew up in South Holyoke. And uh, I think, you know, uh, saw that as, as, you know, his neighborhood and, 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 a, and a, you know, a sort of a big constituency he wanted to be sure to be reaching out to during his campaign. And he said over and over again that uh, people's, people's message to him on the campaign trail was not, we need less police, but where are the police? Um, so he has, has, you know, uh, has been supportive of, of the department and, and some of its hopes to, to, for example, get another captain position, um, added and, uh, and has, you know, spoken out about the, the desire of, of residents in, uh, ward one and ward two, particularly and downtown, 
to uh, to see less crime in their communities sure. and and to see the the police around. So he's been he's been really clear on that. But he is also moving forward with this audit of the police department, um, uh, which is is a is an accountability. Thing. I mean, just thinking off the cuff, I'm thinking you know the civilian grant writer could also be writing grants in order to provide maybe some more of the social services support that I'm sure the police officers are going to right now, which they're not necessarily trained for, which they didn't necessarily sign up to to deal with, and. I'm sure that could release some of the burden that is currently placed on the police force. Yeah, and like I, I know that the, 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 they have they do have grants that they write for that kind of work, and and you know they do say that they provide wraparound services to people with addiction and 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 folks that they encounter, for example, like in an overdose. Um, mm-hmm. You know that there's follow up from clinical workers after those kinds of things, and and I know that they've written grants to try to do that work or work with youth in the community mm-hmm. as well through okay. the program Roca and and other programs. Um, so I. That is certainly something they've raised as well, that some of those grants do go to important community work in their minds. Dusty, so what prompted all this reporting that you've done about the Holyoke Police was this video by um, former officer Rafael Roca. What happened to him? Uh, That's Um, a great question. Uh, Roca was immediately put on paid leave while the department investigated his case. I think it took around nine months, if I'm remembering correctly, before they uh, moved to fire him, which they did. It happened on, I think it was the last day of the administration of acting mayor Terrence Murphy, who was a city councilor who got appointed to serve out the remainder of Alex Morse's term when he left to be Provincetown's uh, town manager. Um, so he was he was fired. Uh, you know he has has been uh, vocal. I think a couple times since over social media again about problems that he sees in the, apart- the department. I know he told us when we interviewed him about his termination that he planned to appeal. Uh, you know to civil service and to uh, perhaps go further than that uh, legally. Uh, I haven't seen anything on that front yet. Um, and obviously the civil service process can take a really long time. But he was let go. I have to ask this question. Under what justification? I, it's that so was he fired? Yeah, yeah, he was fired for I, I get it. He made accusations. Is it because he went public with the accusations and it's the publicity of that that got him into the... They say he was insubordinate for refusing to take the video down, uh, I believe was the was the primary charge. Um, insubordination is, is obviously a... Um, uh, a Departments see that as a fireable offense. It's a fireable offense. And so, uh, okay. you know, they said that they asked him to take the 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 thing down, the video down, and uh, also, you know, pointed to policies in the department around social media use and, mm-hmm. and other things. Um, and that was the justification for it. Wow. Okay. And let's talk about some more of his allegations for the department. He alleged racism, favoritism. Um, like the regarding who was chosen to work overtime shifts and then sometimes even supervisors not showing up to these overtime yep. shifts. Yep, that's right. Those I think those were some important points that, that he alleged in, in his video. Um, he, as you say, uh, said that that there was a culture of favoritism and, and racism within the department, that it, some of the people who maybe got uh, overtime uh, were favored by supervisors, and uh, that when it came to promotions in the department and 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 you know making sure people got uh, desired jobs, that there was racism involved in in that process. The police department denied all of that and 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 pointed at, at you know evidence in the opposite direction. Um, but the the questions largely remained about 
how overtime was being doled out in the department, uh, who was getting it and, and why they were getting it. You know, this, some of what we tried to get at in our reporting specifically on overtime hours within the department. And it was uh, very interesting to see that uh, you know around half of the top uh, earners of overtime in the department are uh, supervisors and and in some cases administrators um, you know who at least in theory their their job is a, is administrative one in an office um, and those uh, you know conveniently are the people who are, are often paid the highest rates in the department there are other officers of course who are involved in in criminal uh, investigations and 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 detective work who also uh, claimed uh, large amounts of, of overtime in in the year that we focused on um, so there's some of these questions I don't know if we've fully answered uh, within the department and and within our reporting and I think it's incumbent on us to keep digging into the story. You mentioned earlier that there were police officers, maybe the highest paid police officer when you included overtime, made over $200,000 a year. Yes. And, and from what you're saying, some of the top earners were administrative positions. And so, I mean, tell us, $200,000, how does that compare to the average police officer's salary there? I mean, that seems excessively high for administrative uh, work. I mean, I, I earlier asked you the question, was it because they were out there in the streets doing things that one would expect of the police officer? But what you just said in terms of those who were uh, working the police officers and making um, over 200000 they were in desk duties doing other functions. Tell us, what is it that they were doing? Uh, good, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, you know, and I know that some of those supervisors, like, like obviously, they do go out and do uh, yeah. police work, you know, yeah. um, out in the street, et cetera. Um, you know, I can say that uh, some of that is a function of, of how quickly your overtime pay rises within the Holyoke Police Department because of their union contract. Uh, you know, these supervisors and, and captains' roles, lieutenants and, and sergeants, uh, make really high overtime rates. So that means mm -hmm. that uh, that a lieutenant in the year we focused on uh, uh, made $85,000 in overtime pay alone. Um, so that's on top of his salary. On top 85. of his salary, yeah. on top of uh, of uh, detail work, which is a whole nother category of pay. That's when you see police officers at construction sites and and uh, and things of the sort. Um, they also get paid handsomely for that. Not as handsomely as some people get paid overtime, but um, uh, and and on top of all sorts of of other things. And so there's many different ways for police officers, not just in Holyoke, but in all of our cities, to earn a lot of money doing that kind of work. And so frequently you will see that police officers are the highest paid employees in a particular city. And, and often not even the police chief. Here in, in Northampton, I know that there's a police officer, uh, Alan Borofsky, who has, you know, in, in years past made more than the than the chief through lots of, uh, of detail work. And, uh, you know, in, in uh, Holyoke as well, it's a number of, of supervisors who are making a lot of that money, um, even more than the, than the police chief makes. Tell us, are a lot of these rules 
union contract rules that involve state law? Is it just the union contracts are, are favorable and generous? Do you know a little I, bit about that? I, th- I, I think the I think part of it is just that the city's uh, negotiations with the union over the years were maybe uh, pretty generous to the the supervisors union and to the patrol officers union uh, within the department. I had a, a, an anonymous source once uh, it described to me frustratedly that you know the Police unions are are the only unions in the city where the the mayor and city officials will come and and pat each other on the back with the police department and shake hands and and take care of the of the boys in blue. Whereas some of the other unions that are that have far more women employees, like the teachers union, for example, uh, or clerical unions or whatever else, uh, don't get the same favorable treatment. Um, so you know, I think that's something that needs to be dug into as well. What those negotiations have looked like relative, you know, to, to the different departments in the city. Um, I don't have an answer to. to is that like a five? Is that like a five-year con? I mean, I think they usually send three-year contracts three uh, in the department, though I, it can obviously vary. I know a lot of departments uh, in cities around this area signed like one-year deals during the COVID pandemic because nobody knew what was coming in the future. So it really depends on on what the both sides agree to. Yeah. Okay. And in the meantime, these officers are making the, the amount of salary like a teacher is making. Yes. Just in overtime. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is correct. Of the of the top 20 people paid in the city in, in 20, 2017 were, uh, were police officers. And mm. eight of those made more than $200,000. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so, Dusty, you have seen what seems like a disproportionate amount of money spent on some of these officers' pay for overtime. But what have you learned um, looking into this about maybe what the city prioritizes and like kind of the direction? I think that's a really good question. And I am going to give a complicated answer if that's okay. I like complicated answers. Um, I think that this story doesn't necessarily say one thing about how the city as a whole prioritizes spending or what the city as a whole prioritizes. I think it shows that maybe there are, you know, multiple cities within Holyoke or multiple constituencies, obviously, within Holyoke who uh, have different priorities. And it's kind of the competition of those priorities within city government and and kind of the power structures within the city. And obviously, that's true anywhere, um, right? Uh, you know, politics is sort of, even on the local level, is the contestation for power and 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 you know uh, and the ability to to uh, make local government work for certain purposes you know and so you know obviously there's there's tons of people in Holyoke who are very supportive of the police department and and want to see the police department out in the community more uh, and, and and you know continuing to do more work um, and there are people who feel the opposite who who point to instances uh, in the department that uh, that really trouble them I'm thinking of uh, the case we covered of a 14-year-old boy being uh, beaten unconscious and, and held overnight by the department. Um, and uh, obviously, those folks point to the overtime pay stories and others and say that, that you know, policing needs to be totally reworked in, in the city and elsewhere, and uh, that priorities should be placed elsewhere in the education department or in social services. Um, you know, and that is a debate and conversation that is uh, playing out in Holyoke. It's playing out here in Northampton, where we're sitting now, and in Amherst, uh, where where there was recently an interaction between uh, some juveniles and, and the police department that caused a lot of anger uh, in, in the community there. It's something that's happening everywhere, and I think it is uh, a, a lesson in how to follow power dynamics within, within the city government. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and just bringing up a point you made in an earlier segment, maybe it's just a function of no one asking the questions of whether it's right or wrong that the overtime budget has doubled in the last decade. Is it, is it just a function of no one's looking or no one's asking? That's, a, that's another good question. I think you're right. I think that, you know, an informed citizenry and an informed local government is able to man is able to function in, in the greatest amount of transparency and public interest. You know, the more eyeballs that are on uh, a, a city government as it goes about its business, uh, you know, studies have shown that uh, there is less corruption, that tax rates are lower, and that public resources get used in a more equitable fashion when there are watchdogs holding uh, local government accountable and just being the eyes and ears in the room, sitting through all local government meetings from the planning board to the city council and, and board of health and beyond. Uh, you know, that's obviously the role that we as newspapers uh, play more than anybody and is uh, really, I think, the challenge moving forward for journalism is to ensure that those jobs not only remain in local communities, they're being stripped out of them currently, uh, but continue to grow. Um, we just saw massive layoffs at the newspaper, the country's largest newspaper operator, Gannett, uh, they slashed pay while their CEO uh, bought stock back. And um, and so it really is a challenge for all of our local communities to ensure that that kind of reporting sticks around for the future. And I also wanted to touch on, uh, a, you know, it's been maybe a couple of years that Daily Hampshire Gazette has actually begin to, begun to cover Holyoke. That's right. Talk a little bit about that decision, how that came about, and how, how you got to, to be covering Holyoke. I was so excited to be named the Holyoke Beat Reporter. I, I'm, I'm so bad with uh, years. I always have to look things up. Um, the great thing about being a reporter is I can write down everything and double and triple check everything before it goes out in the world. But I think it was three or four years ago before the pandemic that that the paper announced it was going to be expanding coverage into Holyoke and that I would be the Holyoke beat reporter. Um, it was a really exciting moment. I have to say I was uh, originally sold on coming to the paper on the hopes of covering Holyoke. It didn't happen when I first arrived and it kind of bumped me out. So I was really excited to be able to cover the city that did used to have its own robust newspaper. Um, and I, I know I've mentioned this many times previously, but um, it is our parent company, Newspapers of New England, that owned that newspaper and closed it in the 90s, I mm. think in the 90s. Mm. How do you feel um, covering this community um, in like trying to gain their trust as a reporter? I mean, you've, you said Holyoke was like not quite a news desert, but I don't know, how do you, how do you like introduce news coverage back to a community and kind of and, have and, start that dialogue and that trust? And Mel, I'll just quickly add, it's also a town that is uh, at least half Latino. That's right. And so uh, talk a little bit about that and kind of how you build trust that way. I think it's about just showing up to things and covering things. And it's also about acknowledging uh, the past mistakes where journalism has gone wrong. I remember one of my first assignments for the city, I covered a panel on Latinx history in the in the city. Um, the panel featured a number of really prominent uh, 
uh, people from the uh, from the Hispanic community in Holyoke, uh, Betty uh, Medina, who was formerly the executive director of Enlace de Familias, a very important social organization in Holyoke. Um, uh, uh, and, and a number of others uh, were on this panel speaking about the history of Holyoke. And I remember Betty in particular singling out coverage, I forget what newspaper it was, but from years ago where somebody did a photo essay of, of, um, of poverty in the lower wards. And uh, I th she felt that it was particularly voyeuristic and displaying of a community, uh, you know, at its most difficult time instead of, you know, in its moments of, of celebration and, uh, you know, and pride. And I, I think there's been a lot of that over the years. And I, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge going in that, you know, community deserves more coverage. It deserves more coverage uh, by people from that community. Um, I think that's a really important thing. I speak Spanish, but I'm not a native Spanish speaker. I'm not Puerto Rican or Latino. And, uh, and so, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think that points at the direction of where newsrooms and organizations need to be going in order to regain the trust of the people that we're covering. Uh, our newsrooms have to look more like the places that we're covering. They have to be diverse when it comes to race, race and ethnicity and class background. Um, and that's something that I think a lot of uh, newspaper companies and, and media companies are failing at now. Mm. And you just need to, and part of that is making the profession of journalism more accessible. Like yes. if you have to go into $60,000 in debt to go to journalism school, you're not going to be able to take, I don't know what your salary is. It's low. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think that that's an important part of why so many of us at the Gazette, we unionized in 2018 with the News Guild and, and there has been a massive wave of, of organizing across the country at, at news organizations from the, the East Coast to the West. I think that it's incumbent on us as workers and people who value the fourth estate uh, to fight back against the gutting of our industry um, and, and the important service that we bring, but also to be planning for what that future looks like. And it has to look more equitable than it does now. Mm -hmm. We'll leave it there. We are out of time. All right. Thank you for listening to Panorama. I'm Sarah Robertson. I'm Dan Torres. And I'm Dusty Christensen. And we have been talking about the Holyoke Police Department, journalism, politics, and everything that the illustrious reporter Dusty Christensen from the Daily Hampshire Gazette has uncovered in his time as a beat reporter in Holyoke. Thank you for joining us and tune in next time.